Love Talk Radio. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave and ancient land to me. Of the Garden of Eden, but 
I can't help but say bad that I'm getting a taste of that. And um, <laughs> it's it's nothing to be ashamed of in terms of I know a lot of people around the world are suffering, but, you know, I made a conscious choice to to dedicate my life to sharing Yahweh's testimony, to translating his words and to sharing them. And Yahweh made a conscious decision evidently to say, all right, well, I'm going to make it as pleasant for you as I could possibly make it. I, so wonderful health, wonderful wife, wonderful home, wonderful island, wonder, oh, wonderful friends. Tonight we had uh, uh, three of our, uh, our Jewish friends over. Uh, I am Jewish by occupation. Uh, my wife, of course, is Jewish by ethnicity. Uh, my dog is, is Jewish by attitude. Uh, but the captain of our of Kara, our boat, is uh, is Jewish. Uh, he was here for dinner tonight, and uh, the uh, general manager of the resort in Marina that we call home, uh, who's my closest friend on the island, he was uh, here with us uh, this evening, uh, and we had a wonderful Shabbat dinner. And, and just before uh, dinner, uh, my wife's closest friend on the island uh, uh, came by, who is also uh, Jewish. And so we have wonderful Jewish friends here, wonderful friends. Uh, and I, I don't think it's, we sh- you know, sometimes I feel embarrassed to say, well, you know, life is this wonderful. Um, but I think it's what Yahweh intends. Mm-hmm. He, he wants our lives to be wonderful. He kept on telling Israel, if you just listen to me and, and respect who I am, and, and engage based upon what I'm teaching you, this is the kind of life that I'm going to provide for you. And, okay, so I'm a goy, but I, I'm, I'm as close to being Yehudim as you could be. I celebrate the, uh, the name. I'm beloved by Yah because, well, I love Yah, and he loves those who love him. And, and so... I'm living proof that any moment that Yisrael were to turn around and embrace Yahweh, that God will honor his promises. And life is wonderful. I, I understand it's going to get better. But it's pretty darn good now. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you guys would agree. We have wonderful lives. Um, and God promised a wonderful life now and even more wonderful in the hereafter. Now, if you are a religious Jew, not so good. You know what religious Jews do on uh, Kippurim? They don't call it Kippurim. They call it Yom Kippur. But you know what they do? Yeah. What is the, the most... Um, the signature... Oh, no, no, no. That, that's, that's too simple. Don't even... What do passing. they do? Well, well, of course, they do that. That's not the, uh, the signature move of uh, Kippur. I didn't know this until uh, recently. And, and, and again, I would encourage people to do what, what I do. And I know I get a lot of flack for, for uh, revealing the news agencies that I use. And, and, but nonetheless, I have, I don't know, uh, 30 or 40 newspapers where I have a, a homepage that shows me the top eight stories of 25 to 30 different news sources and so I can choose to read what I want to read. But my favorite is the Jerusalem Post. 
And mm-hmm. one of the reasons I like the Jerusalem Post is I'm really interested in Israel. I know that the politics is horrible. I know the religion is horrible. Uh, I know it's a absolute mess. But I really am fascinated by what's happening in Israel. And the Jerusalem Post, for, uh, based on every news source, and, and I'm a news junkie. I, I, I read them all. Um, the Jerusalem Post is the, about the most even-handed news source I've ever read. They they will give um, an opportunity for the religious to express themselves. They'll give her an opportunity for the secular to express themselves. They'll give an opportunity for everyone to express themselves. And yet they're still judgmental. They will call the Pakistanians terrorists. Uh, so it's an interesting uh, news source. But uh, the answer to the question is... <clears throat> If you are an Orthodox Hasidic Jew, what you do on Yom Kippurim is you torture chickens. Do you guys know that? Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. I never heard this one. Yeah. Uh, Kippur. They uh, they take chickens, transport them to wherever they uh, they are in in uh, in cages without food, without water, exposed to the elements where their, uh, their feet, their wings, and that sort of thing are constantly subject to being torn up and ripped apart, and so they're, they're often mutilated. Okay. And I the mutilated ones, they, they just discard because they can't use them. But they will take the others, they'll grab them by their wings, and they'll fling them around over their heads and say a prayer to, uh, to transfer their sins to the chicken. <coughs> I kid you not. They torture chickens. No, they don't even eat them. At the, at the time they've done with that, they kill the chicken, they pile the chickens uh, up and let them rot. That's yep. The most ridiculous That's how ever. disgusting the religion of Judaism is. Fling chickens around their heads. They torture them while they're praying uh, that their sins are transferred to the bird they're afflicting. They might as well be giving God the bird. It's disgusting. And, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the Torah. You guys have as well. Can you tell me where the Torah speaks of tormenting a chicken? Nowhere that I know of. Now, can you explain to me why people who claim that Yom Kippurim is a fast, by the way, Yahweh never mentions it's a fast, but nonetheless, they call it a fast, uh, why you would kill a chicken on the day you're not going to eat? When, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, what do you do with it? You eat it. Right yeah, eat it. Well, you eat it. You nurture the family. The, the when work. these numbskulls yeah. kill the chicken, what do they do? Well, it's the fast. They throw it away. Yeah. It's just total lack of empathy. And what's the most even amazing about this uh, chicken ritual in fundamentalist uh, Orthodox Judaism is there's not even any mention of torturing chickens in the Talmud. And the first mention of torturing chickens on this day, the rabbis condemn it. And yet, by the hundreds of thousands, in the United States and Israel, Orthodox Jews torture chickens. It is interesting that somebody posted three or four of the most recent chapters, I don't know if they were Teruah or Kippurim, where God is just lambasting Judaism. I mean, when God speaks of 
of Teruah and of Kippurim and of his return. He is he's saying uh, many things. And one of the things he's saying is, I just despise Judaism. And that Judaism is the single greatest menace to my people ever. And so if you read these chapters in, uh, on Teruah and Kippurim as they appear in the the uh, Moed appointments volume of Yeshaya, they are exceedingly condemning of Judaism. So they were posted on a number of Jewish sites. And the first thing that happened is they were taken down as being hate speech. But then they were put back because they're not hate speech. Is it this? this is God's position? This is the rabbinical position? Uh, they don't agree. So it's uh, interesting to see how uh, as the, these books and their rewrite gain traction. Just what um, mm-hmm. the rabbis and the orthodox religious Jews do with the truth. Because they've got a problem, and that is that God despises them. And we will get to these chapters. In fact, I'm writing right now chapter 4 and 5 for an introduction to God. And in those chapters, um, I share God's utter disgust for the religion of Judaism. And I go actually into what happened most recently, where by criticizing Judaism, uh, my uh, analysis was called anti-Semitic. And I'm here to tell you that the single greatest abuse of Jews is Judaism. And that if you're going to uphold and be compassionate for the ethnicity that is Yisrael and Yahudim, you have to expose and condemn the religion. And what the religious wants, mm-hmm. just the same as, as Islam, is they want the religion and the ethnicity to be indistinguishable. So that it, when somebody criticizes the religion, they can demean the person not by evidence and reason, but by calling that person a racist or bigot. When in my case, in God's case the, the opposite of, yeah, of that is what is actually true. And uh, you know what, sh- what the Hebrew word Shem means? Shem the name? Yeah. So anti-Shemite would mean what? Anti the name, of course. The name. Right. So in the, in the Jewish religion... Have you ever seen anybody, a rabbi, anybody writing Talmud, Zohar, you name it, a speech or written document by any practitioner of rabbinic Judaism that mentions Yahweh's name? Impossible. Nope. Nope. So who is... Hashem, G-D. Right. So who is opposed to Yahweh's name? Who is anti-Shem? Rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism, of course. And yeah. what is the name of the uh, of the uh, the series of books? Now we have twenty of them. What's the name of those books? <laughs> yada yada yah. Yeah, yada yawa. The no yawa. So, would you please tell me who's the anti-Semite? Judaism. Yeah. Not us. We celebrate the name, yes, and we please. celebrate the name on behalf of Yehudim. We want. Jews to become <coughs> Yahudim again, which means beloved. 
of Yah. But for that to happen, they've got to come to embrace and respect Yahweh's name. A long way from where they are. All right, let's pick back up where we left last week, uh, where it uh, reads. And this is the second of two statements that are very similar. Do not consistently or habitually, when we read that, we know we're reading something that was written in the imperfect conjugation, which means ongoing behavior. Do not consistently or habitually attempt to perform the work, lo asha. Do not continually reassign or uh, that which is associated with uh, accomplishing the service, engaging to do or profit from the endeavors pertaining to anything associated with coal, the malaka, the spiritual counselor and heavenly messenger. Malaka, spiritual mother, heavenly envoy, feminine representative. It is, after all, the feminine of Malak, spiritual messenger. This is an eternal and everlasting olam, chuka, clearly communicated and inscribed prescription for living. Throughout your generations, la dor atam, every situation and dwelling place, bakol Moshab Atem. Throughout all time, in every household, location, and condition. Well, that sounds pretty all-encompassing. So, fellas, mm-hmm. is there an escape clause? Is there any wiggle room, any opportunity to prevail under something this dramatic? Do not consistently or, or habitually attempt to perform the work pertaining to anything associated with the Malacca spiritual counselor and maternal messenger. This is an eternal and everlasting, clearly communicated and inscribed prescription for living throughout all of your generations in every situation and dwelling place. One thing you can do is if you're doing it, you can quit. Ah, there around. you go. That's the beauty of the imperfect conjugation. Imperfect. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty of it. it with the imperfect conjugation, uh, any of us who have failed in this regard, all we have to do is stop. To do as Yahweh says, and the moment you stop, it doesn't matter what you did in the past. You're good to go. That's the escape clause. An exception. Mm-hmm. Loa Shah was written in the imperfect, so all one has to do is cease. The imperfect speaks of habitual and ongoing behavior, which ceases to be either when we refrain. You know that uh, of the ten statements that Yahweh etched in stone, on the second tablet, there are seven instructions. Do you know that six of those seven instructions were written in the imperfect. Mm-hmm. And what that means is all Yahweh is asking is that we don't continually do those things. You could have been a habitual liar. But the moment you stop, you're good to go. That's the beauty of the imperfect. Oh, by the way, the one of the seven that's not written in the imperfect is is written in the imperative, which uh, expresses uh, free will and uh, the yeah volition and the second person. 
uh, and it's the one about uh, respecting one's mother and father to prolong one's life in the promised land. And so it's, uh, that's all about choosing to properly respect and esteem your Heavenly Father and spiritual mother so that your life can be extended. Yahweh's Torah instructions endure forever, and they are applicable in every situation throughout time. So what, may I ask, is the purpose of the Mishneh Torah, the Talmud, and the Zohar, a New Testament, a church canon, a book of Mormon, if Yahweh's Torah instructions endure forever? Better question yet. With this inscribed prescription for living, enduring throughout time to reconcile the existing covenant relationship, what's the purpose of Judaism? What's accomplished by Christianity or Islam other than to immortalize Akiba, Paul, and Muhammad? Bingo. With this in mind, think for a moment and consider what has just been said especially in light of the religious instruction regarding affliction of one's soul on this day. That's what the rabbis would have you believe. You're supposed to afflict your soul. But they've come up with an interesting twist in that because I guess afflicting their soul wasn't so much fun. So now they just abuse the soul of the chicken. But nonetheless, the the chicken got... Oh, my God, oh, yes. Me, me. They, yes, so they, yes. The Bereth and the Mikre, as well as the Torah, Nabi, and Mizmor, all convey the essential realization that Yahweh allowed his soul to be humbled and abused so that our souls would not be similarly affected. And this is his message. And it was his sacrificial gift to those who respond and answer his invitations. Since we cannot add to it, we can't improve upon it, prudence encourages us to accept it. Before the show began, uh, Kirk, you told me that you uh, endeavored to do something that I haven't done since, I guess, when I was trying to validate the proper pronunciation of Yahweh's name. I spent uh, two weeks and I looked up every single word, and analyzed it that had a, a yod a, a, uh, and, a, and a wah in them, uh, just so that I could, without any question, validate that yod heh was pronounced as uh, Yahweh. But you told me you uh, pursued ana throughout the Torah, mm-hmm. Prophets, and Psalms, and looked up not only every time ana is used, which is like four billion, uh, maybe a slight exaggeration, uh, no, but uh, but in addition to that, you even went to the Dead Sea Scrolls and decided to look up how it's written. What did you yeah. learn? Well, I learned is you know first of all they they're very deceptive. They take a null and they give it two different numbers, strong numbers, uh, and then when they do the in linear, they use the one they want to use, which is sixty thirty one, which means they uh, it means afflict. So I was looking, well, so I started with 6030, where it's used the most. It's 329 times it used uh, as ana is to answer, respond, uh, perhaps to testify. But answer and respond is 99% of the stuff. Yeah, and, and by the way, you know what the um, difference is between the, um, the two anas, the 
answer, respond, um, reply, sing, mm-hmm. be devoted to, you know, uh, versus the one that's afflict. Do you know what the difference is in the uh, the Hebrew of the Torah, Prophets, and Psalms between the two? Well, in the ancient Hebrew, there is none. There's none. There's so a, the only yeah, difference yeah. in the uh, in the lexicons is the Mesoretic diacritical markings, where in the mm-hmm. 11th century we get a a uh, uh, the Mesoretic text where there's the inference, uh, the outright statement that the Hebrew language of 22 letters doesn't have any vowels, so they have to be supplied. What, of course, is interesting about that is that, yeah, we would think to differ. There, there are five vowels and 17 consonants. And, oh, by the way, in in modern uh, Hebrew, they've come to recognize that. So now in modern Hebrew, there's no diacritical markings. They just write the language (laughs) recognizing that there are five vowels and 17 consonants. This is not difficult. Mm-hmm. All right, so you uh, you checked it out, oh, and 99% right. of the times that ana appears, A-N-A-H, appears that mm-hmm. it means to reply, to respond, and to answer, or to sing, or celebrate, make a declaration, yeah, that sort of thing. Certainly the, certainly the vast, vast majority do it. I even looked at the two-letter root, and that doesn't mean afflict either. It means to perceive, watch carefully, and answer. And then I looked at all the places they translate, the English translators used uh, afflict, and I found out that 99.9% of the time, they are the one who's being afflicted is the enemies of Yahweh. Yeah. All the Torah. And there's so one if you're afflicting your soul, what you're disclosing is that you're an enemy of Yahweh. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, that's not good. No, not at all. No, I'll I, I tell you what, uh, I mean, I, I have a love affair with Yahweh. I love his name. I love his personality. I love his words. I love his approach. I love his sense of humor. I mean, Yahweh's my dad. Uh, I love my dad. But I cannot imagine anybody choosing to position themselves as an enemy of Yahweh. Hardly. I mean, that's really stupid. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to, just to wrap it up, the, the, there were six times when they changed it. This comes from the Masoretic. They've changed it uh, to afflict, um, mm-hmm. and those are the ones that we've been working on right now. And then the only place where Yahweh actually afflicts his children, uh, and that is to humble them, is when they're out uh, marching around in the desert for 40 years because they refuse to trust him and go into the promised land. And he says, well, I'll just start over. And all that time, he was afflicting them so bad, he kept them. Their shoes never wore out. Their clothes never wore out. They got fed every day. Uh, so he still takes care of them. They got water. He's just humbling them because of they them. needed it. If that's affliction, you're in the right. – uh, yeah, By the now. way, it's exactly what we're doing. Yes. By – by deciding that he was going to communicate through a goyim, a nakar, an observant foreigner, um, he is uh, humbling his people. Oh, yeah. Saying, it's embarrassing. I had to stoop to using a goy because you were not responsive. You didn't reply. So it's the same kind of thing. But just like him providing their shoes, their food, uh, the insights, protecting them, the whole purpose of this goy is to reach out and address, to protect, to enlighten, 
Jews. God is using them, yes, to humble them, but also to reach out and protect them. It's the, it's the same thing as what you found. What my experience yes. is with Ana, uh, positive Ana negative is that Ana is like many Hebrew words where, uh, there, where there are, is a dark and light side to the word. And that, uh, that the context is what determines whether or not you use the dark and light side. And that most words that have a dark and light side uh, are 99% of the time positive and about 1% of the time negative, unless, of course, you're reading a religious Bible translation in which they invert that and make them negative. Yare, to respect and revere Yahweh, mm-hmm. to fear and be terrified of Yahweh is an example where if we were to render it 99% of the time, it means to respect and revere. And the only time that you're going to fear and be terrified of Yahweh, if you chose during your whole life not to respect and revere him, then he's going to judge you. And yeah, that's the point where you'd want to be terrified. So ana is one of those words where unless the context makes it impossible to render the word reply, respond, or answer, uh, you translate it as reply, respond, and answer. And so on Yom Kippurim, which is, let's see, Yom Kippur, Day of Reconciliations, where God is purging us of all things that are wrong and renewing our relationship with him, bringing his people back home, which sounds like about the most positive thing he could possibly do. Mm-hmm. If there ever was a context where you cannot render it in the negative afflict, that would be it. I would think. I mean, this is it's absurd to think. Any, think of think of it. You know, I know you wrote this uh, or something akin to this. If 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 someone is returning to a relationship to someone who is superior, a king, a husband, in, in mm-hmm. the old context, or something of that nature, and the and you're telling them, I'm going to torture you, I'm going to beat you, I'm going to mentally berate you or flog you mm-hmm. when you come mm-hmm. back, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, then why the heck would you want to come back? Of course, that's the option. I'm going to so so. Why would he do that? He you know why would somebody write that? I mean. Or, this okay, is too well, that, for words. that kind of return would be a summons to return as a slave. Right. That would be a summons or to a return defeated, as a slave. Defeated army. Yeah. Yeah. Yahweh's yeah. invitation is to return as a child of God. Yes. Nobody, other than a demented soul, afflicts their own children. Mm-hmm. Well, the day of reconciliation is about returning to Yahweh's family. Now, as is the case with the harvest of trumpets, Yom Kippurim is a special Shabbat, the time for us to celebrate our relationship with Yahweh. It is a day set apart to capitalize upon God's offer of reconciliation. Now, before I share this statement, uh, one of the things I, I want to convey is that I think that the likelihood that the rabbis are right, and that the Shabbat is a day to do nothing, is wrong. And I would give it a 99 percentile 
as wrong. The more I'm exposed to Yahweh's words and scrutinize what he said, and particularly on a day like this, I've come to the conclusion that the Shabbat is not a day to cease what we are doing, but a day to celebrate, to actively engage in the relationship and celebrate, enjoy, capitalize upon what Yahweh intends and what he's offering. So I think that the Shabbat, rather than being the least active day of the week, is the most active. It's the most empowering. It's the most enriching. It is the promise of, uh, of seven. It is the set-apart day to revel in and respect the relationship and plan that Yahweh has established to enrich and empower his children. So that's my view. I, I think that, that, well, you know, I don't claim to be perfect. I'm not a prophet. I'm a messenger. Very big difference. I'm a witness. Uh, very big difference between the two. Um, but I'm convinced that the religious have it wrong. The, well, the Shabbat is the, the most sorry. active no, and exciting day of the week. Mm-hmm. It is well, for you, Hugh La Atem. And Atem is the plural of you. Ata mm-hmm. is, the, uh, is the singular of you. So it is for you all. And we can go down into the south, in the deep south. Jesus it is, uh, it is right there. It, it is for y'all. A Tim y'all. A Shabbaton. A Shabbaton. Shabbat and own. When you add own to the end of a word, it means that we should express, consider, revel in everything associated with the concept that precedes it. A Shabbaton, an empowering and enriching expression of everything associated with the promise of seven. A special day set apart to revel and respect in the meaning of the Shabbat and how we are enriched and empowered. A Shabbat observance a seventh day to celebrate with God. And your soul should anah reply by answering the summons and making a declaration. Should focus on this opportunity and then respond, making a thoughtful announcement. During the ninth from Sha'ah to be observant, and to hold in high regard. Looking forward to the next day is what ninth means of the month. In the evening, from sundown until sunset, you should consistently observe, closely examining and carefully considering your association with the Shabbat. Kara. Called out Leviticus 23.32. My, oh, my. Now, are there some things here to dig our teeth into? All right. Shabbaton. Yahweh doesn't use Shabbaton very often. He, he uses Shabbaton in the introduction to Chag Matzah. Mm-hmm. You could make a case that Yahweh is not calling Chag Matzah a Shabbaton, but Yahweh uses every 
important word in the Hebrew lexicon to say that matzah is the day of days, essential, life-giving, set apart. It's a moed. It's a mikra. It's a chag. It is extraordinary. And his preamble to it, to chag matzah, he calls this time a Shabbaton. We even spoke of Teruah. Teruah is listed as a Shabbaton, mm-hmm. a time to celebrate everything associated with the oath of seven and of the seventh day. So it's for you a Shabbaton. A Shabbaton means that you celebrate the day as if it were a Shabbat, no matter what day of the week it falls on. So if you want to know why the rabbis changed well, they don't even call it Teruah. They call it uh, Rosh Hashanah. But they changed it to before the light began to renew on the, the surface of the moon. Even a day before a sliver could be seen. That's why our celebration is three days behind the, the rabbis. Is that they do not ever want their high holy days and the Shabbat, the Shabbaton, of Yom Kippur, yes, yeah, actually Yom Kippurim, to coincide with either a natural Shabbat or the day before a Shabbat, because it would mean two Shabbats in a row, and oh my God, how are you going to survive? Two days or a up. Shabbat Shabbat, and what's the purpose? Now what do you do? And so they just changed the day, arbitrarily. Well, they changed Teruah to Rush. Rosh Hashanah, the Babylonian head of the new year. And, of course, uh, Kippurim is part of Chag uh, Sukkah, which is a festival feast. And God says nothing about a fast or of starving yourself on this marvelous day. In fact, our meal tonight was um, lamb, um, olive oil with uh, bitter herbs, um, red wine, and... uh, we had uh, unleavened bread, matzah. Sounds, I'm sure, to many of you like, okay, so what were you doing celebrating Pesach? Well, Same thing. since God doesn't celebrate, I mean, doesn't, doesn't designate the menu for, uh, no. uh, for Yom Kippurim, he does designate the menu for Pesach. All right? Yeah. Those are the things that he designates for Pesach. I have now celebrated Pesach for the last 20 years, and I happen to enjoy that menu. That's my favorite meal of the year. (laughs) So on Yom Kippurim, he doesn't designate the menu. What that tells me is, Dad's letting us choose. No wrong answers here. No wrong answers. Uh, And in my case, and in my wife's case, we go to our favorite meal. What's our favorite thing? That's our favorite meal. So that's what we celebrated. Why not do it? Why not do it? It's our favorite meal. And it it brings back such memories. I mean, we just kept on looking at each other with our friends over and just relishing how much we were enjoying being together and celebrating this meal with our, our favorite menu. So God not only says it is for you, by the way, not for him, a Shabbaton, an empowering, enriching expression of everything associated with the seven. It's a Shabbat observance. Shabbat is used as a verb. It's a Shabbat observance, the seventh day to celebrate with God. Now, if it's a verb, 
Are verbs static or actionable? <laughs> Action. Oh, yeah. That, 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 that's the definition of verb, right? All verbs are actionable. Got to move. Got to move. Yeah. So if Shabbat is a verb, it's actionable. How, how can it be a day to do nothing? Good thing. So your soul, your nephesh, should reply by answering the summons and making a declaration. Now, if you're going to change ana to afflict, how do you afflict a non-material entity? It doesn't say your body should respond. (laughs) It doesn't say, you know, your leg should respond. It doesn't say your back should respond. Your arms should respond. It says your soul. Soul is a non-corporeal entity. It is essentially energy-based. How do you afflict energy? We you take a flashlight and you say, okay, I'm going to shine another flashlight through it. What am I going to do? I'm going to take a pickaxe and I'm going to stab the light coming out of that flashlight. That'll show it. How do you do that? What's wrong with these idiots? It says it's about your soul. You and I cannot afflict humble, harm, abase our souls. We shouldn't do it to our physical being, but we can't do it to a soul. So it's your soul should respond by answering the summons and making a declaration, Anna. Now what's next is is interesting. During the ninth of the month, what day is Yom Kippurim? Is it the ninth of the seventh month? The seventh of the seventh month. It's the tenth of the seventh month. The tenth. So why is Yahweh saying during the ninth of the month in the evening from sundown until sunset you should be yeah. Well, actually, no. The, uh, well, the evening of the ninth doesn't begin on the uh, on the ninth of the month. It begins on the tenth of the month. The tenth of the month begins the evening of the uh, of what we would consider the ninth. But the ninth mm-hmm. of the month, from the Hebrew perspective, begins the Might night be of the eighth. Previous, the previous. Yeah, evening, begins on the eighth. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. Yeah, I got you. So why is he telling us? For a festival feast that begins on the 10th to be observant and circumspect on the 9th. Well, well the answer is the, it's not just a Shabbaton. It's the day that Yahweh is returning. We could set a place for Yahweh on our table. We can set a place for Dode on our table. This is the day that Yahweh is returning for his people with his son and the Messiah. And so it got to say, you know, get ready. Starting the day before, get ready. I woke up on the, uh, on the ninth yesterday, and I told Leah, mm-hmm. I said, tomorrow is Yom Kippurim. We, we need to be ready to celebrate Yom Kippurim. He says, I'm with you. Let's, uh, I'm going to go out shopping right now. Let me, let me get what we, uh, we're going to use and, uh, and begin to get it all ready because I agree with you. This, we need to be ready. Yeah, you're right. And 
if you're a Jew and the day of reconciliations is the time you're reunited with Yahweh, well, if you're not ready, it's going to pass you by. Bad chance to be late. Yeah, you don't want to be late for this. <laughs> so during the ninth day of the month in the evening from sundown until sunset, you should consistently observe, closely examining, carefully considering your association with the Shabbat. Well, I want to tell you, I've done a lot of that. I married a woman that, that thinks the Shabbat is the day for long naps. It's the day to be an introvert. It is the day that I don't want to people, she would say. I just want to be quiet. And for me, the Shabbat is my favorite day to translate, to, uh, to uh, study the, uh, the word and to share what I'm, uh, I'm learning. It's my single most productive day of the week. Uh, so we just have a, a different approach. Now, she is so active with her naps and, and the like. Actually, uh, she's really sweet. She actually gets dressed up. She, she puts on her prettiest uh, dresses and jewelry and everything. She really gets dressed up for the Shabbat, which uh, is just a tradition of hers, and I love it. It's so endearing and, and charming. She's dressing up for you uh, on, uh, on the stage, you know? Dad's going to come home. You, got, you want to look good. And, uh, and I take this day as dad's going to come home. Uh, I, I want as many people to be there as possible. So I'm going to do my best to share what sure. I'm, uh, I'm learning. Yeah, so we just have different approaches to, uh, to this day. I think both are, are wonderful. And God's not dictating to us what we should do other than, uh, you know, don't try to be God. Don't try to do the job of the spirit. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. Uh, that's a really bad idea. So you can choose how you want to approach the Shabbat. Now, the last time we witnessed the juxtaposition of Shabbaton and Shabbat was uh, 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 during the Chag Matzah, where both were mentioned together. Uh, I was in Kara 23.3, and we're now in, in uh, 23.32. The exact same bot uh, advice was reprised in anticipation of the second and second to last moed uh, for matzah, symbolizing the removal of uh, Mitzrayim, and for Kippurim, the ultimate reunion. The two most essential and life-sustaining days on Yahweh's annual calendar are framed by Shabbaton Shabbat an empowering and enriching expression of everything associated with the promise of seven, a special set-apart day to revel in, to reflect upon the meaning of the Shabbat, celebrating the seventh day with God. Now, following the reminder that our soul is best served by relying upon Yahweh's invitation, um, here, as I mentioned, we're told something that we're, we don't see anyplace else. Yom Kippurim is observed on the 10th day of the 7th month. And yet, here we were directed to be especially vigilant on the 9th day. Particularly with regard to our personal in, uh, interpretation of the Shabbat. Is it, it's God telling us that the Shabbaton Shabbat of Yom Kippurim is so essential to our standing with him that we need to get it right. Mm-hmm. And that the best way to achieve that result 
is to be properly prepared. Now, I use we here. Um, ethnically, I'm not Jewish. Yom Kippurim is for ethnic Jews. Now, I, me thinks that having spent 20 hours, or excuse me, having spent 20 years of 10 hours a day, uh, seven days a week, translating Yahweh's word and reaching out to his people probably makes me as, as, as about as much Yehudim as, a, as any Yehud. But, you know, nonetheless, this is a day for Yisrael and Yehuda and Yehudim. And it's important that Jews get it right, because if you don't, there, there's no second chances here. It's just over. This is your last and best hope. Also, since this Shabbat observance continues from sunset to sunset, means that for the purpose of observation, the day begins and concludes at sundown from the Hebrew point of view. We're used to the idiocy of a day beginning uh, at one second after midnight. To me, that's that's the night. I'm, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm not alive at the... I guess I'm alive, but I'm certainly not uh, cogent Engaged. at that time. Yeah. yeah. So this further affirms that the days of the week do not reset with each new month because the seventh day of the weekly Shabbat cannot naturally fall on the ninth or tenth of a month, if that were the case. This then reaffirms our previous conclusion that a Shabbaton is a time for us to observe the Shabbat and everything the Shabbat represents, regardless of the day of the week upon which the Mikre Shabbaton may fall. So prophetically, as we have learned, the Mikra of Yom Kippurim foreshadows Yahweh's return. It celebrates the reconciliation of Yahweh with Yisrael and Yahudam in the waning time of Yaakov's troubles. This is the time when the Messiah will return, the Son of God. And his name is Dod. Unlike Yah's previous visits where he presented his soul in the diminished form of a man, to fulfill Pesach. This time, Yahweh is returning his light. Those who have responded to his summons will be protected by his spirit and will be saved. Those who come to fight against him, his people, and his land will be annihilated. What follows is a detailed review of that time. The people involved and the consequence of choice. So this is a summation of Yom Kippurim, the day many of us are celebrating on this day, the tenth day of the seventh month. Then Yahweh declared the word to Moshe, saying, exclusively, Ach, during the tenth of the seventh month is the day of reconciliations, Ach Kippurim. It is always, by the way, written in the plural. You know why? Because there's more than one reconciliation going on. 
That is correct. Who the man Yisrael? Yes, it's not only Yisrael and Yahudah with one another; it's both with Yahweh. So there are lots of reconciliations going along. And there's a lot of people being reconciled back into Yahweh. If we do our job as well as Yahweh is intending and, and helping us do this job, there are a lot of people that are going to be reconciled on this day. This exists as a set-apart and special Kodesh invitation to be called out and meet, Mikra, for you all to approach La Atem. Then your soul, wa es nefesh atem, should respond, ana, and appear before karab, the feminine manifestation of the fiery light, to approach Yahweh. Kara twenty three twenty seven. You know, I was translating something today. I'm going to see if I can find it here uh, quickly, where um, we read uh, something that that um, clearly indicates what Yahweh meant by these two things about uh, Karab and, uh, and Isha, the feminine manifestation of God's light. And here it is. This is from Devadim. It's Moshe speaking, 411. Then you approached Karab. So then you approached, you came near. Now, the religious want to render karab, then you presented a gift. Well, in this case, Yahweh is speaking and sharing his Torah with the children of Israel. They're gathered at the Mount of Mount Choreb. There are no gifts involved here. It is a clear, unmistakable presentation of the verb karah, then you approached wa'amad, and you were present standing at the base of the mountain. Then the mountain was ablaze with the fiery light as an eternal witness to the thinking and desires of the spiritual realm of the heavens concealed within a thick cloud. Well, think about that now. And during the Mikra, Yahweh says, come into the presence and approach the Ishe, which we recognize as the feminine manifestation of God's fiery light. Mm-hmm. And here God is saying on the body 411, you approached Karab and you were present at the base of the mountain. And the mountain was ablaze with the fiery light, Baha Ish, the masculine word of fire. And what is the Ish? It is an odd and eternal witness to the thinking and desires of the spiritual realm in the heavens. The use of Karab to approach in conjunction with coming into the presence of the Ish, fiery light, representing the odd, eternal witness of the Shama'im spiritual realm, leaves no doubt that we have translated the Mikre instructions correctly with regard to Karab and Ishe. 
the feminine manifestation of God's enlightenment. This is important because Karab Ishe is the unifying theme among the Moed and most always misrepresented in Bible translations. So just as the children of Yisrael were summoned to approach and were present before the blazing light representing Yahweh's restoring testimony as he sought to teach his people to respect him sufficiently to live, we are invited to do the same thing symbolically each year during the Mikrei. If you look long enough, you will find a verification for what is the right, correct, and obvious rendering of the words of God. And there we found it. So then Yahweh declared the word to Moshe, saying exclusively, during the tenth of the seventh month is the day of reconciliations, ha Kippurim. This exists as a set-apart and special invitation to be called out and meet for you all to approach. Then your soul should respond and answer and appear before the feminine manifestation of the fiery light to approach Yahweh. Therefore, do not perform or attempt to profit from any of the service of the Malaka, spiritual messenger, and maternal counselor during this life-sustaining and essential day. Indeed, Yom Kippurim, the day of reconciliations, is to make amends, is to purge that which is offensive, to pardon and to forgive, reconciling the relationship for you all before the appearance and in the presence of Yahweh, your God. Truthfully, any soul which by association does not answer and respond during this life-sustaining and essential invigorating and corporeal day, that soul will be cut off and either eliminated or exiled from being with the community and kinship of living souls. Any soul or individual consciousness capable of being observant and responsive, which by association continually attempts to perform or reassign any part of the work of or to make a profit based upon the malaka, the spiritual counselor and maternal messenger during this life-sustaining and essential day. That specific and individual soul, God says, I will eliminate so that it ceases to exist and is forcibly expelled from being around the family and striving against the community of living souls. Do not consistently or habitually attempt to perform the work pertaining to anything associated with the Malacca. Boy, you get the message already? Mm -hmm. This is an essential and everlasting, clearly communicated and inscribed prescription for living throughout your generations in every situation and dwelling place. It is for you a Shabbaton, an empowering and enriching expression of everything associated 
with the promise of seven. A Shabbat observance. A seventh day to celebrate with God. And so your soul, the aspect of yourself capable of being observant and responsive, you know, talk about the perfect blend of Shamar and Ana, Eth, mm-hmm. Nefesh, Atem, should reply by answering the summons and making a declaration, Ana. During the ninth of the month, in the evening, from sundown until sunset, you should consistently observe, closely examining and carefully considering your association with the Shabbat. And therein is Yahweh's presentation of Yom Kippur. Missing from that presentation is twirling a chicken above your head. (laughs) Missing from that presentation is afflicting yourself. Missing from that presentation is a reference to high holy days. Missing from that presentation is Judaism, rabbi. Um, Beginning of high holy days with Rosh Hashanah or any reference to a fast. All of that is religious. All of that is counter to God. If your dad has chooses to celebrate your return, let's say that you have been for the past 2,500 years out there on the lamb. You've been rebellious. You've been a little whorish. You've squandered the family fortune. You've lied about your father. You've denied your inheritance. You've denied your family. And somewhere along the line, somebody says, hey, what's the matter with you? Your dad loves you. Your dad gave all of this to you. Why, why are you besmirching his name? Why are you discrediting his testimony? Why are you being this way? And you as a child decide, you're right. I, I shouldn't be angering my father. I should embrace my father's love, my father's mercy. I should go back to my father. And when you were to do this, recognizing your father's loving, what is he going to do? Is he going to say, you son of a bitch, you spit on me, you besmirched me, you sullied my name. Get the hell out of here. I never want to see you again. Or is the father going to say, Son, what took you so long? Welcome back home. We're going to prepare the most wonderful meal. We're going to have the greatest celebration. Because after all this time, you've decided to come back home. I love you, son. One of those is endearing consistent with Yahweh's purpose in creating the universe, and the other is absolutely absurd. Why would Yahweh endure the last 3,000 years, really, 
Well, there's been so little good and so much animosity coming out of Yisrael. Why would he endure that? Only to slap the few who wake up and return to him in the face and say, nah, I'm going to hang on to the grudge. Forget that I promised to reconcile my relationship. Nope. I like being angry. Or it's been 3,000 years. Welcome, my son. Better late than never. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate our relationship. It's so obvious. I wrote in this uh, chapter on uh, for the new introduction to God, I said, you know the most Torah observes adverse people in the world are Orthodox Jews. Now, before we consider the profound prophetic implications of Yom Kippur, because we've now heard what Yahweh has to say about the day, what we mm-hmm. haven't yet uh, analyzed is that the, the book of, of Zachariah, which is a long one, the book of Malachi, messenger, and Zachariah means to remember Yah, they're dedicated to a, sing, a singular theme. Uh, the last 10 to 15 chapters of Yahshayah, the same thing. Same thing. Yahweh's return for his people on Yom Kippur. So the prophetic implications of this day are exceedingly profound. There is nothing that Yahweh says has more to say about prophetically than Yom Kippur. So, I want our listeners to appreciate how theologians have robbed so many of this truth by promoting all manner of uh, pagan religious schemes. All Saints Day, also known as All Hallows' Eve, shortened to Halloween, is a direct counterfeit of the actual intended purpose of the Day of Reconciliations. It was originally celebrated as a Celtic festival, which focused on the dead. I take a deep breath there because the DNA, the blood that flows in my veins, is Romano-Celtic. And to know that the ethnicity from which I have come, which I have separated myself, is the origins for the corruption of this day. To a day from a day of reconciliations to All Hallows Eve uh, causes my stomach to turn. Mm-hmm. It was originally celebrated, as I said, as a Celtic festival which focused on the dead. It was the day, or so it was believed, that the deceased tormented the living plaguing them with diseases and damaging their crops. So, these spirits needed to be appeased. Therefore, costumes were worn by the living to mimic the dead spirits they were trying to placate. Amazing how easy people are to play as fools. The Celts carved turnips 
similar to today's jack-o'-lanterns. And they placed a candle inside to symbolize the head of the deceased. The story goes that Jack was a drunken Irishman. (laughs) I had a deal with the devil and uh, tricked him by carving a cross into a tree. The devil is said to have cursed Jack, forcing him to wander aimlessly all night, carrying a candle inside of a hollowed-out turnip. And so hundreds of millions of people carve out their gourds and put a candle inside, dressing up like the dead on All Hallows' Eve. The tradition of All Hallows' Eve grew in popularity to the extent that it has become part of the most European religions. To counter its appeal, Pope Gregory III moved All Saints' Day, the Catholic necromantic holiday celebrating the dead, from May 9th, 10th, and 13th, 9th, 11th, and 13th, I think, to coincide with this pagan festival of All Hallows' Eve. If you can't beat them, join them. Mm-hmm. And he moved it so to be celebrated on October 31st. Then in 837 CE, Pope Gregory IV ordered that its celebration be observed by the entire church. Oh, you just got to love those popes. This move was particularly incriminating because the timing and history of Lemures, the basis of All Saints' Day, is itself a reenactment of the Roman religious observance of the Lemuria. That's where rites were designed to exercise malevolent and fearsome ghosts and to cause them to flee one's home. The Lemures, or the restless dead, we would call them zombies today. Zombies, yeah. Yeah, we're given treats to keep them from playing tricks on Roman families. By way of background, in the reenactment of Romulus um, appeasing the spirit of Ramus, the religious Romans tossed black beans over their shoulders at night, reciting, With these beans I redeem me and mine nine times. Uh, of course, maybe with the Hail Mary here or there. Oh, the Hail Mary, a a religious ritual or a football play. I, I, I don't remember. It's become Every, synonymous. Yeah, yeah. Everyone in their household would then bang pots repeating, Ghosts of my fathers and ancestors be gone. So Pope Boniface IV of the Roman Catholic Church on culminating uh, the culminating day of uh, La Morelia in 610 CE, consecrated, which is to say he dedicated and approved for a sacred religious purpose, the high day of pagan spirituality of uh, all places. <laughs> this idiot. He did it in Rome's pantheon, <laughs> home of all gods. His his dedication was specifically made to the Blessed Virgin, 
<coughs> all of the saints. You know, Babylon has a virgin. The Torah does not, which I'm sure they made the goddess for whom Easter was named. And the Madonna uh, was based very, very happy. Uh, if Samaremus was real, uh, she would be smiling. Astarte, uh, dancing with glee. The worship of dead spirits or saints is necromancy. And it is called an abomination by God. Yes. This is what God says. The body words, Deuteronomy 18, 10 to 12, just in case you were wondering. There should not be found uh, among you one causing his son or daughter to participate in magic, fortune-telling, witchcraft, consulting with the dead spirits, one who invokes the deceased, the act of calling upon dead spirits for approval and support, praying to saints, or one who beguiles by summoning spirits, one who causes the premature death of others by way of destructive worship of heathen deities. All who do these things are an abomination, hated and detested by Yahweh. Now, the purpose of Christianizing the Roman religious festival, making it All Hallows' Eve, was to cause it to be easier for the universal religion, which is what Catholic means, to assimilate the masses and to control them. So as the inheritance of the Roman sun god worship were incorporated over time, there were new pagans to assimilate. Therefore, All Saints' Day was moved to October 31st, to coincide with the Northern European observance of All Hallows' Eve. It is like the Church Father saying, was it not extraordinarily good fortune that the day that the unconquerable Son was born, on such a day, the Son of God was born? (laughs) How convenient. Oh, how convenient. No, idiot. The Son of God is Dode. He was not born on the winter solstice. He has nothing to do with nine months after the Son, uh, the the Mother of God and the Queen of Heaven, is impregnated by the Son's rays to give birth nine months later. No, these things have nothing in common. And for you to draw a connection means that you are reinforcing your pagan religion with pagan religions. It was then that Pope Gregory III, 731 to 741, approved and dedicated it, sanctioning it in the Basilica of St. Peter, saying, it was a day for all saints and should be observed as a day of fasting. The fasting aspect of the papal edict most likely arose because the date of All Hallows' Eve coincides most closely with Yom Kippurim, the rabbinical day of fasting and self-denial. And we as Catholics, you know, could not handle the idea that those Jews may have an inside track to God that we don't have. 
It was like uh, Muhammad's incorporation of Ashuradeh into Islam. He saw numbskull Jews celebrating Ashura, the queen of heaven, the mother of God, and says, oh, if it's good enough for the Jews, sure as hell good enough for the Muslims. That's what we have here. The religious holiday known as Halloween came to America with the arrival of the Catholic Irish during the potato famine. It has subsequently grown into one of the nation's most celebrated evenings. In fact, there is some research that says that now Halloween is the most commonly and universally celebrated holiday in America. Isn't that something? Yeah, it's amazing. And it is, of course, the counterfeit that coincides most closely with Yahweh's Yom Kippurim, the Day of Reconciliation. Before I came to know Yahweh, that was one of my favorite holidays of the year. I always looked forward to Halloween. It was the first one I made myself give up. Yeah, I know. You know, I'm... Uh, I happen that's to. That's going to be the hardest. You, so might as well do it. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of dressing up and uh, and particularly the idea of being able to take children door to door for for sweets and uh, and yeah, candy um, that was a, appealing. Well, it's also pagan, and of course, mm-hmm. you know, uh, decorating one's home with lights and bringing in the tree and putting the ornaments and presents underneath it. Well, that was appealing too until you realize that it was an abomination to Yahweh. And all of a sudden you realize, you know, there are days that are appealing to Yahweh, and they're a whole lot better than these. And Mm -hmm. I can tell you, I had one of them this evening. And there is no time ever in the celebration of Halloween or Christmas or Halloween and Christmas combined and throw in 10 Easter's to boot that I enjoyed myself more than I did this evening. Good for you. Don't lose a thing, really, when you give up these uh, religious uh, holidays. So the religious holiday known as Halloween came to America at that time. And in the process, the pagan necromantic celebration has become a widely popular counterfeit of Yahweh's six Mikre. In this way, it is identical to another uh, Roman celebration. Deus Nautilus Solus Invicti, the birthday of the Inconquerable Sun. The Roman legions honored Mithras, the Babylonian sun god, and the god of Constantine, the founder of Roman Catholicism on this day. During the reign of Aurelian in the 3rd century CE, the December 25th observance of the birthday of the Inconquerable Sun was promoted as an empire-wide holiday in honor of the legions and their god. Now, these are the same legions that attacked Israel three times. These are the same legions that destroyed the temple and carted away the treasure to build the most decadent and disgusting of all buildings, the Roman Colosseum. These are the same Romans whose legions caused the diaspora and Jews to be tortured by Christians forever. These are the same Roman legions whose Rome would become the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, the birthday of the unconquerable son of Mithra's birthday was on December 25th, because at the time, 
that was the winter solstice, where on that day, the days began to grow longer and the nights shorter. It was considered the birth of the sun. It was the time when plants would begin to grow again. This unconquerable sun promoted by the Roman legions became the basis for onward Christian soldiers marching after war with the cross of Romans going on before. The transition from Roman militarism to the Christian religion was aided by fellow Roman Paul, who told Timothy, you therefore endure hardness as a good soldier for Jesus Christ. I've been with you now for 20 years. He's asked a lot of things of me. Never once has he asked me to be a soldier. He's never once asked me to, to throw a fist in anger, to attack anyone with a weapon. Never asked me to defend my uh, home or defend my country. There's at no point where Yahweh has ever said, be a good soldier. What's interesting, even about Dode, who was who only fought to defend Israel. He fought no aggressive battles to expand no. Israel. He fought only to defend Yahweh's flock. Even at the end, when he wanted to build, he had accumulated all of the materials to build Yahweh's home. He had bought the threshing floor uh, from the Jebusite that became the Temple Mount. Uh, but God said, you're not building it because there's too much blood on your hands. Mm-hmm. He was a man of war. By the way, that line actually has nothing to do with the Dode killing Israel's enemies because supported that. Why did God equate the, make a statement, a declarative statement about there's blood on Dode's hands? And Yehudim he did kill or had killed. Nope. No, not the one he was married, he nope. married his, his nope. wife? Nope. 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 That is not okay. why God said that. Nope. Nope. Oh, God okay. said there's blood on your hands because hmm. when he returns, it is the what? What day is he returning? Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What happens on Yom Kippur? He's going to reconcile one oh, and wipe yeah. out the others. Uh, yeah, but um, uh, Mike is the uh, one, my fact checker, is the one that uh, brought this to my <laughs> okay. attention. Because a long time go, ago, I would write, you know, I was so excited about uh, what is a, a Ron something or other that, uh, uh, that claims to have found the Ark of the Covenant. I believe he probably did. Uh, underneath the... Uh, uh, Golgotha, uh, the place of Pesach, um, in Yermaya's uh, grotto. And, um, and he uh, spoke of the blood of the Passover lamb on Pesach dripping upon the, uh, the arm of the mercy seat, which is the, the uh, arm of uh, the Ark of the Covenant 
in which the tablets of stone are stored and by, by which you'll see the original autograph of the Torah scribed by Moshe. And, uh, and he says that was, you know, all done in, uh, in compliance with uh, Pesach. Oops. The blood of the Pesach lamb is smeared on the doorposts of the homes. It's not placed on the mercy seat. There's blood dripped from the tips of one's fingers that is put on the mercy seat only on what day? Kaparim. Yeah, that's right, on Kaparim. And Yahweh originally instructed Aaron to do it. But Aaron had this little problem. He had an affinity for, uh, for golden calves. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Yahweh said, listen. A little problem. Yeah, you you got this problem with the golden calf. So for you, pal, I got it. We have this special uh, little thing you're going to do. You're you're going to go get a calf, and you and the first thing you're going to do is going to sprinkle some of the blood of that calf upon the mercy seat because I want you to get your act together. This is my way of saying I, I'm I was not pleased with the golden calf episode, Aaron. You got that wrong. But then after you've done that, Aaron, and now, now you're prepared to do what's necessary to reconcile my relations with my people. Do you know what the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant is called? Kaporeth? Kaporeth. Do you yeah. know the difference between yeah. Kaporeth yeah. and Kaporum? Kaporum is the plural of it. Well, it's still the same thing. So... The, the, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant and the Day of Reconciliations, the same Hebrew word. So the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant to, to be allowed mercifully back into the covenant is associated with a singular day. Kippurim. And so after Aaron got his act together and could at least enter the set-apart place where the Ark of the Covenant was, God says, I want you to come in with the blood, not of the Passover lamb, but of a goat. Goats and lambs are very different creatures. Goats are disagreeable. They're stubborn. They're not relationship-oriented. They have a tough time with names. They don't like their own or anybody else. And so you're going to take that because that represents the people. And you're going to take and you're just going to smatter from your fingertips a little blood on the mercy seat of that goat. So we move into uh, Zachariah. And there's this whole story of Yosha, the high priest. Now, this is not Yosha, the Yosha that's the Passover lamb. This is a dunderhead Yosha. Even Yahweh says, Okay, I get it. The guy's a dunderhead. I get it. The people with him are scumbags. But nonetheless, I have to have a high priest perform on Yom Kippurim because I'm not changing my plan. That's my plan. We're going to exercise that plan to reconcile my relationship with my people on Yom Kippurim. So dress him up. Clean him up. Dress him up. Who gets dressed up wearing the garments of a priest 
on Yom Kippurim, on its fulfillment? Dode's one coming back. Dode, David. Yahweh is dressing Dode up in the garments of a priest, including the headband, all the white linen, every bit of it, not because Dode is a priest, because he's going to perform the role of a priest, because it is Dode who is going to sprinkle the goat's blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, Kaporeth, to celebrate and honor the promise of Kaporeth. And so the reason he is specified as the man who has blood on his hands is because that is the blood that's going to fulfill the promise to enable the Day of Reconciliations. That's how the story comes together. Wow. Yes, exactly, you are. <laughs> it's amazing. And in future wow. programs, with this, we're about to finish with our uh, broadcast, and, uh, and we're going to go into the recording part of the program. And, and because it is a, uh, a Shabbat, and I am going to celebrate it with uh, my lovely wife, uh, I am too mm-hmm. going to Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, because it is, it is the Shabbat uh, squared uh, today. Uh, we are going to celebrate this entire expression of the fulfillment of Kippurim. We've talked about Yahweh's instructions of this day. Fairly straightforward. Didn't have a lot to say about it, actually. But yet, there are three prophets. That's all they talk about. Well, two prophets. That's all they talk about. And the last 10 to 15 chapters of Yahshua are on this subject. And there's a lot of characters that are interwoven into Yahweh's return. Dode, foremost among them. And so we're going to go through that. Guess who else is woven into it? The two witnesses during the last days, presented by uh, Zachariah early on in this process, because they're the ones calling out in the wilderness of, of words to make ready the return of Yahweh. And oh, by the way, there's, um, you listen to Yashayah, the knacker, uh, returns to call Yahweh's people home. It is part of that story. It is the most amazing picture that God has presented of this extraordinary day, where he has more to say about it than any other day, not in the way that we are to celebrate. Like somebody wrote me, a lovely person wrote me a letter and say, you know, what, what is the menu for Yom Kippurim? And my answer is whatever you want whatever it to be. Whatever you want. Yeah, whatever you want it to be. That is I'm with you. I recommend lamb and some matzah just because it's delicious and goes great together. And it reminds us of how we got here, right? Mm-hmm. It's hard not to remember how we got here when, you, when you're eating lamb and matzo with a little uh, olive oil and bitter, bitter herbs. It's not only spectacular, but it brings uh, uh, the year to, uh, to closure. And, and so that is where we are. It is a, uh, it's a day that God says very little about in our celebration of it. But he says such an enormous amount in terms of his fulfillment of it. It is the day 
and all of the existence of Yahweh. From the moment he created the universe to the time that he will recreate the universe. And all of that time, this is Yahweh's favorite day. Now, that is not to say that everything on this day is going to come up roses. Uh, there will be thorns. There will be weeds. There, this, there's recompense on this day. But that's all part of the love. It's all part of the compassion to prepare us to return to the Garden of Eden so that there's no more religion. There's no more politics. There's no more conspiracy. There's no more militaries that those of us who have chosen to celebrate Yahweh are given the opportunity to camp out with him forevermore. Well, the seminal day is Kippurim. And so Yahweh is marshalling all of the resources of which we are part of to awaken his people, to call them home to expose and condemn the things that are the most harmful to them so that they can walk away from them before they return because they're not dragging Judaism into eternity. So my friends, we are about to embark on on what I think is the most amazing of all prophetic journeys. We're going to travel into a time Uh, that begins in earnest in the days preceding Passover in uh, 2030, when Elia returns uh, along with the other witness. And what transpires thereafter and how ultimately the Messiah and Son of God, the King of Kings, dote, uh, returns and the relationship between Israel and Yahuda and Yahweh are reconciled. So with that in mind, let's uh, let's pause where we are here. We'll pick up the story uh, next week. It is uh, I, I realize that by this time next week we will have already have celebrated Sukkah. Um, but in the midst of Sukkah. Yeah, our, that's right, we'll be in the midst of Sukkah because it's seven plus uh, on eighth day. We'll be in the midst of it. Thank you for correcting me. Um, Kippurim, between now and year 6,000 Yah, when it's fulfilled, is Yahweh's focus. So we'll be talking about, we may be talking about it all the way to next Kippurim. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we... But it's worth it. Yeah, this is is what we're called to do. And I may share um, uh, somewhere along the way, we may uh, step out of Kippurim long enough to explain Yeshaya's view of it and our role in it. So, um, in fact, I think it was BB that was saying, I'm trying to find the chapters called uh, Why You, Why Me? And they have not been published yet. They have been completed. They've been edited. Um, uh, but they haven't been published yet because I didn't want to publish them until I had finished the two chapters that follow it, which are uh, a thesis on the Word of God. 
and how we translate it, what God's intent is, how he uses the term word in his uh, Torah to communicate with us. And so I didn't want to share it between now and then. But somewhere along the way, we have to get into it because for, yeah, for Yehudim and Yisraelites to be reconciled to Yahweh, um, the religion has to be exposed and condemned. And we're going to do that. We're going to do it boldly. And we're going to confront the myth that exposing and condemning Judaism is the antithesis of being anti-Semitic. It's the most loving thing we could possibly do for God's people. It is what God wants us to do. It's what God himself does. So let's... uh, Celebrate uh, happy, happy, happy Yom Kippurim to one and all. Um, enjoy the first days of Sukkah as we uh, approach it this week, and we'll be back in the midst of our Sukkah celebration. May Yah bless. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbaton. Yom Kippurim. Good night, everyone. Night, JB. Night. Night, Craig. Good night.